0: So he hands Paul over to police custody to the governor at the time. And basically in that time, the governor had two roles. He was both the judge and he was both the premier of all of Palestine. So he had pretty much complete control. And he was a corrupt guy. And uh, I think it's chapter 23, it says he visited Paul regularly, l- hoping that Paul would bribe him so he could let him out of jail. But uh, he never did that. And so the governor leaves him in jail on trumped-up charges, For two years until a new governor is put in place, which is where we pick up today for Acts chapter 26. And uh, basically, this new governor's been in town for only three days. He wants to, he can't make heads or tails of why Paul would be in jail. So he brings in an expert, uh, King Agrippa, who's the prime minister of Israel at the time, the king. So, and Debbie's going to read our passage from Acts chapter 26. This is Acts 26. uh,
1: verses 2 to 29 from the English Standard Version. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, that I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Israel, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise God made to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest. At midday, O king, I saw, the, on the, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And, we, and when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said... in the temple and tried to kill me to this day i have had the great help that comes from god and so i stand here testifying both to small and great saying nothing but what the prophets and moses said would come to pass that the christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead he would proclaim light both to our people and to the gentiles And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophet's... I know that you believe and Agrippa said to Paul in a short time would you persuade me to be a Christian and Paul said whether short or long I would to God that not only you but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am except for these chains.
0: Good job Debbie. Thanks for reading God's word. So I'll pray. Father you've loved us so much in Jesus. Please change us and more and more like him by getting us to believe the gospel more. Please help me to watch my tone and to be clear. Amen. So, uh, a couple weeks ago, Joanne and I celebrated our first anniversary, and uh, yeah, don't worry, I'm not going to make any more jokes about sex this time. Uh, so, why, why? we? when we came back, uh, we were dancing to our wedding song, and I'm, I'm not someone who cries or whatever, but... Maybe I was crying on the inside, but, and I was just thinking about how how good God is to me, and uh, without even realizing it, I started to pray. Basically, a simple prayer was like, "You've been so good to me. Whatever you want for my life, I'll do it. Like I don't care if you you want me to move to Nunavut. It's 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 your life. So, and that ties in with something that Jesus said to his disciples. He said, "If you love me, you'll keep my commands." So there's there's something in there that. The more we love God, the more we appreciate and value him, the more we'll want to obey him, the more we'll want to keep his commands. But the problem is, most days aren't our anniversaries, you may not even be married, or maybe your marriage is on the rocks. So there has to be something outside of our circumstances that's always the same, that never changes, that gives us that love for God so that we'll obey him, so there'll be more changed. And what it is, is the gospel. So for Paul, in the first third of the, the chapter that uh, Debbie read, Paul had grown up a Jew. He tells everybody you guys know about me. Um, I was a success story within, uh, as a teenager, with, as a Jew. And all along, being raised, we would have known that our hope is in the promise that God had made to our fathers. So he's referring to the Old Testament. The Bible's broken into two parts. The first two-thirds is the Old Testament, everything that happened before Jesus. And all along the way, God had been making promises to the Jews that one day he would send somebody who was going to rescue his people, and they called it the Messiah, which is a Hebrew word, and in English, it means chosen one, or the anointed one. So you're probably not, uh, it's not an uncommon thing. If you watch movies, you've got Star Wars or The Matrix, there's going to be a chosen one who's going to come and restore balance to the force, or that's going to save the day. I mean, even LeBron James has chosen one a tattoo on his back, so as if he's going to be the savior of basketball or something. The The concept is really old, and all those have basically stolen it from the Bible, that all along the way, like I said, God was going to send one person who was going to be a king, he was going to rule over God's people, he was going to be a prophet, he was going to declare what God spoke to people, but above all things, he was going to be the savior. So Isaiah 53, verse 3 says, it's a great verse in the Old Testament. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We've all gone to our own way, but He has laid on them, or He has laid on Him, the iniquity of us all. So that's Paul's hope. He's he's trusting, like all Jews, that one day there's going to be this Messiah, this chosen one, who's going to come and save the day. You've got to Abraham, God comes and says, "Look at the stars. Try and count them. And one day, through you, there's going to be more people." Who are part of God's community than all the stars in the sky? And even though there is a lot of Jews today, that's not what he's talking about. It's, um, and in Genesis, you've got uh, the promise to Eve that the Messiah was going to be bruised by Satan, but ultimately the Messiah was going to crush the head of, of Satan. So I've got a visual illustration to understand what Paul meant, or Paul would have been looking for. The Jews understood that one day you were going to die and that you were going to go before God and be judged. So pretend, like all people who've gone to university and hate looking at this, this is a scantron of an exam. So when you're in university, you write your answers here, you put in your name at the top, and then you hand it in and the computer can mark the the questions for you. So basically, Jews viewed their life as a test, that one day God was going to mark their test and see if they passed or failed. Okay. But since everybody has sinned and either done wrong or not done the good that they should have, they knew that they were going to fail. So they were trusting that one day there was going to be someone who would write the perfect test and put all the answers in the right place. Only, instead of putting their name at the top of the page, they were going to put your name if you trusted in them. So think about it this way. If you did go and write an exam and you had someone who was really, really smart and you didn't study for the test at all, what you could do in theory is you could write your bad test and put their name at the top of the page or and then if they wanted to, they could write their perfect test and put your name at the top of the page. So you'd get their mark, and they'd get your mark. And so that's exactly what they were looking for as a hope. All Paul has done is basically believe that God kept his word and that he fulfilled it in a man, Jesus Christ. So Christ isn't a last name. You, don't, you couldn't look it up in the phone book under Mary and Joseph and you know, give them a buzz under Christ. It's a title, <laughs> It's a Greek word that means the same thing in Hebrew as Messiah. Christ means anointed one. So all people who are disciples of Jesus are saying is, it's Jesus the Christ. It's Jesus the Messiah. He's the one who wrote the perfect test, and we're trusting in him. And all that does is when you trust in him, now you're justified, what the Bible calls. So think of it that you're going to be- go before a court, and all the charges are there, and you're guilty, but the judge throws out the case that you're acquitted, and so you go free. And at this point, the governor interrupts him, and he says, you're crazy, you're, you're nuts. And Paul says, I'm not nuts. I'm making perfect sense, I'm logical, all my words are rational, because everything lines up with all the promises that we heard in the Old Testament. So we'll go through a couple of them. By the way, Luke's a historian, the guy who writes the book of Acts, so they would have public records of what Jesus' life was like, they would have known him because he's a public figure, um, everything would have been open to scrutiny and people could look at this to see if he really did line up with all the promises of the Messiah. So, here's a couple. This is Jeremiah 31. It says, Thus says the Lord, A voice heard in Ramah. That's the area that Jesus was born in. Lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. And then in Mark, or sorry, Matthew chapter 2, verse 16, this is another part of the Christmas story that most people don't realize happened. That Herod who was the king at the time when Jesus was born, tried to kill baby Jesus. So he sent the wise men to find out where the Messiah was going to be born, and they were going to report back to him and so that he could go and assassinate him. Only the wise men, they go back another way and they never report to him. So basically what he does, Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or older. So basically he tries to corral that whole region, says, "I don't know exactly where the Messiah was born, but I know if I kill out all males under two, I'll get him." And like I said, that that never makes it on hallmark cards and you know Chris, there's no Christmas ornaments about that stuff. Um, so we'll look at it. we'll look at another one. Uh, Bethlehem, it was told in Micah 52 that he was gonna, the Messiah was going to be born in that city. Obviously that's where Jesus is born. Uh, can you flip the slide? Psalm 22, this is written hundreds of years before crucifixion, Roman crucifixion had even been invented. David, God speaking through David says, For dogs encompass me, so there's going to be a crowd surrounding him, and a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. And then in Luke 23, Jesus is actually crucified, which of course is you die, uh, they nail you to the cross through your hands and your feet. So another one, Isaiah 35, The eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears unstopped. Uh, lame people are going to walk, quadriplegics are going to get out of wheelchairs, everything's going to happen. That's obviously Jesus' one of his main claims of fame was that he was a miracle worker. So Paul can look at that and say, all right, we know he was going to be born, we know the events surrounding his birth, that all these people were going to be upset in Ramah, we know how he was going to die, we know uh, that he was going to be a miracle worker. And Jesus of Nazareth fits that bill. So all Paul has done is just basically put his hope in that, and he can say to King or say to Festus, "Listen, I'm not crazy. Anybody can believe in Jesus. They may not have had the same Damascus Road where experience where Jesus met them personally, but through the Bible and through looking at the Old Testament, you can know that Jesus is the Messiah. That he's the chosen one. He's the anointed one. He's the one that you want to write your test for, and you want to put his name at the top of your page. And just just as a last point on that, archaeologists today can look at the The promises, all these promises are older. The manuscripts that they're written on are older than Jesus Christ himself. So think about it this way. If a couple hundred years ago, somebody came out during maybe the War of Independence in America and said, I think one day there's going to be a black president. I know it seems unlikely. Um, His birthplace, even though contrary to Donald Trump and other conspiracy theorists, his actual birthplace is going to be Hawaii, and he's going to be a great speaker and all this stuff. Hundreds of years before Barack Obama came on the scene, and we still have the copies of those those manuscripts that they wrote down. You would believe in those people. You would believe that God spoke to them about the future. The same thing happened, that's all Christians do. We look at the Old Testament, we know that these things are older than Jesus, yet they tell us about Jesus. Okay, so this is the main point. This is where I was going at at the beginning. There has to Now that you've accepted Christ as your Savior now that you believe that He is the Messiah, how do we become more like Jesus in our actual everyday life? The word there is sanctified. So before I use the word justified, that's when you're acquitted, that's when you're forgiven. Jesus says, if they believe in me, they're going to be forgiven of their sins. They're going to be justified. But also, there's this assumption that by faith, they're going to be sanctified. We're going to become more like Jesus in our actual character and lifestyle. And one of the best ways to say it is we're sanctified the same way we are justified, by faith in the gospel. So it's going it's to take a little while for me to explain that, but it's a huge principle that's all throughout the Bible once you begin to see it. So I'll show you some other verses. Second 2 Thessalonians 2.13, through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. So by believing the truth, they're going to be sanctified. This is Colossians 1. I was just reading this for fun the other day, and boom, it pops out again. The the gospel which has come to you is bearing fruit and growing, as it does among all of you, since the day you heard and understood the grace of God. So you understand the grace of God since day one. It starts moving in your life. It starts changing you to bear fruit. John uh, John 6.56 is kind of like the lesser-known cousin of John 15. Everybody has heard the famous passage if you want to bear fruit, you have to abide in Jesus. In John 15, Jesus says, unless you abide in me, you can't, 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 can't bear fruit. So the same way you can't expect an apple tree to produce an apple if you cut off the limb, it has to be attached to the trunk. The same way we have to abide in Jesus. But in the same book, by the same author, John, in chapter 6, he defines what abiding is. Jesus says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. So, that's a symbol. Think of communion. When we drink the juice, that represents the blood. When we eat the bread, that represents the flesh. So Jesus is saying indirectly, by believing the gospel, or by reminding yourself of the gospel, you abide in me, and that's how you bear fruit. Titus three eight. Insist on these things. This is Paul speaking to Titus. Insist on these things so that those to devote themselves to good works. So what's these things? Paul makes no... Makes, uh, no he wants people to do good. So he says... Titus, tell these people these things. So that's the verse right there in eight. So you have to look to the context, look above that to see what these things are. Uh, verse four: But the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. He saved us not because of the works we had done by righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing and regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit when He poured out richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. He goes through the gospel. He's telling them over and over again, Titus, this is what you're supposed to tell people. You're supposed to remind people of the gospel. You're supposed to tell them more and more about they've been forgiven, they're cleansed, and then they'll devote themselves to good works. So do you see that principle unfolding more and more? It's in the Old Testament. It's all over the place. Uh, you got the Ten Commandments. When do the Ten Commandments come? Before or after Exodus? After. God comes and saves all the people. All two million Jews pass through the Red Sea By pure grace, they hadn't done anything yet. There hadn't even been Ten Commandments for them to follow. God does it all for them, and then, after they love him and they're thankful, then he comes with the Ten Commandments. Look at Romans. Romans is the best book of the Bible. It's 16 chapters long. Paul spends the first 11 doing nothing, nothing at all, aside from telling them doctrine, theology, the gospel, believe this. He doesn't tell them to change their life. He doesn't tell them to stop swearing, clean up, any of that stuff, until he gets through with the gospel. Okay, Ephesians chapter 3, Paul does the same thing. Or sorry, Ephesians is a book. There's six chapters. He goes 1, 2, and 3, the first three chapters, all the gospel. Then chapters 4, 5, and 6 is application. Okay, now be a better husband, be a better employee, whatever. Okay, so this, this isn't just something that I picked out of the scriptures. I want to show you that lots and lots of people throughout Christianity have ex- also explained it, but they explain it in different ways, but it's the same principle, okay? So Martin Luther, who was uh, the guy basically that spearheaded the Reformation in 1600s, he said that we break the Ten Commandments because we broke the first one. Okay, The first one is to love God, to have no other gods before him. And he says that if you covet, right? I think that's number nine, if you covet your neighbor's stuff, if you're jealous for the other person's possessions, that's the surface issue, that you're sinning, that you're jealous or whatever. But he, Martin Luther said underneath it you're That way, because you broke the first commandment, you're not loving God. If you loved God, the coveting thing would look after itself. So, here's some other, I'm just going to quickly go over them. A.W. Pink, God lived a couple hundred years ago. The more we are acquainted with his love, its character, fullness, blessedness, the more our hearts will be drawn out to love him. John and Stacy Eldridge have nothing to do with A.W. Pink whatsoever. This is like a, a book written for women, and I, I read it. But anyways, <laughs> that... So, at the end of the book, this is her summary. She's not trying to talk about this principle, but she can't help but go back into it because it's so there. This, uh, that is why we can only risk stepping out when we are resting in the love of God. When we are received his verdict on our lives that we are chosen and dearly loved, that he finds us captivating, then we are free to offer ourselves. John Groves, guy with the New Frontiers. Grace motivates us from the inside, from an inner affection, and is much more powerful than the law. Philip Yancey. The solution to sin is not to impose a stricter code of behavior. It's to know God. Piper, faith is the God-appointed means of justification and sanctification. Gary Gallant, worship is the weapon. Thomas Chalmers, Thomas Chalmers, no relation to Pete Chalmers. By setting forth another object, even God as more worthy of its attachment to exchange an old affection for a new one. In other words, you stop looking at one thing and you start looking at another. And this one's the last one. Westminster Confession of Faith, faith, thus receiving and resting on Christ and his righteousness is the alone instrument of justification. So we only become Christians, we only go to heaven by accepting that Jesus wrote that perfect test, not that we added anything to it. Yet, it is not alone in the person justified, but worketh by love. So all these people are saying the same thing, only they're just describing it in a different way. Okay, so I think by now I want to try and explain how the gospel actually changes us. So my first main point that i want you to try and take home is that the gospel is what changes the more you believe it the more it's real to you the more you'll become like jesus okay and i want to show you how that works i think it's easier if i show you than i try and explain it so right now it's it's new year's eve and there's going to be a huge spike in gym memberships and then by like february or march it'll plateau right now everyone wants to turn over a new leaf everyone wants to change But how does the gospel actually make you a better father so that when you come home from work and you're tired, you still want to tune into your kids and listen to your wife? How does it make you the type of roommate who, even though your other roommate is messy and leaves their dishes in the sink, you actually serve them and clean up after them? How is it it that the gospel makes you someone who prays more for the city or for the church? Okay, we'll look at a couple... uh, Can you switch to the next slide? Thanks. We'll look at... um, say, greed versus the gospel. You know what Time Magazine voted the person of the year was? The protester um, with the Arab Springs thing, but uh, pretty much the w- Occupy Wall Street. That's been huge. That's been all over the news the last year. And if you're not familiar with Occupy Wall Street, uh, they're getting actually kicked out from Fredericton today. It, it, I don't want to speak on totally on behalf of it, but a huge part of it is that 1% of the world's population owns 99% of the resources And 99% of the world's population only owns 1% of the world's resources. So that's unfair, right? That's greed. It's clearly greed. So what they're trying to do is protest and trying to have legislation passed so that we redistribute the wealth. So we want to tax the rich more, and we want to take that money and give it to the poor and stuff like that. And I think the gospel makes you step around that whole thing. You don't have to have somebody come into your pocket and make you give away money. I think it's it's clearly assumed that, new Christ, that the New Testament Christians are going to be generous people because they believe the gospel. So think about it this way. What, it, what is the gospel? One way you can say it is that Jesus was very rich. Okay? He was that point zero 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 one percent of the population that had 99.999% of the world's wealth. He was in heaven. He was in glory. And yet, for our sake, he who was rich became poor, so that we who were poor would become rich, right? Do you see where that's going? So the more you believe that, the more you take that in, then that will want, that'll make you want to be the type of person who actually gives away your money. Jesus wasn't just spiritually poor. He was financially poor. When he was born, what did Mary and Joseph give as the temple offering? A pigeon. If, if you understand why they have to give gifts When a baby's born, eight days after it's born, you know, ten fingers, ten toes, everyone's happy, they're thankful God gave them a baby, what they do is they give a gift back to God. So rich people would give like a cow or a lamb, but if you were on the bottom rung, if you had pretty much next to no money, you gave a pigeon. That's the last acceptable offer when your baby's born. And that's what Mary and Joseph give for Jesus. He was Pope, okay? So his whole life, he says at the end of his life, foxes have holes to live in but the son of man he has no property he has nowhere to lay his head he was buried in joseph of arimathea's tomb which is a borrowed tomb he had no money so he was totally poor but he didn't come to earth just because he was bored he came for us now if you just hear that and it washes over your head yeah yeah okay i got you but if you actually sit there and believe that and you take that in he who is rich became poor so that i who was poor am now rich in christ it changes you to want to give away money. So I don't need people to legislate me to give away money. I want to do it. Do you see how that works? So we'll go over, we'll go over another one. Suffering or discouragement. This, this, I'm not, uh, this isn't my own thing. This is something from uh, Redeemer Presbyterian Church in uh, uh, New York, which I'd listen to. Anyways, the suffering, I think there's two common ways people handle suffering. An I hate thee or an I hate me. So people people will get mad at God and say, I hate thee. They may not say it out loud, but in their heart, when bad things happen to them, they get angry at God. Okay, But underneath that is this thing, this principle that says good things should happen to good people, and bad things should happen to bad people. And since bad things are happening to me, and I'm a good person, I'm going to get angry at God. This isn't fair. He's not supposed to do it this way. right? But Jesus totally totally removes that if you look at life through the gospel filter if you look at it like i'm trying to illustrate then what do you look at jesus jesus wasn't just a good person he was perfect but lots of bad things happen to him he suffers a whole lot but god does it or allows it to happen to redeem him not to redeem him to redeem situations to redeem us to change things so even though your may not be the the reason you're suffering god can take that and he can redeem it if you Look at it through the gospel. So uh, Paul says, all things will work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to the purpose, i.e., those who believe the gospel. So you can look at that and say, yeah, I have no idea why God allows this this, this stuff to happen. I don't know why he doesn't heal me. I don't know why uh, my job has to be so hard. But I know, because Jesus died for me, that he's going to work this for good. Okay. And the other way you can... I guess that's popular to handle suffering, is an I hate me complex. So maybe someone has uh, been a professing Christian and they have been skipping out on church or they haven't been reading the Bible, and then bad stuff happens to them. And they think, oh no, this is God's way of getting back at me. right? I haven't been doing what I'm supposed to be doing, and now he's come to punish me. all right? But again, that's a, that's a wrong way to look at it in your mind. The Bible says that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if you are a Christian and you believe the gospel... God isn't punishing you for your sin. Jesus was already fully punished for your sin. So do you see where I'm going with that? He has to be taking something to redeem it. Maybe it's probably a wake-up call um, to get you to the place where God wants you. But it can't be that he's punishing you. So those are two ways that you can handle suffering differently because you believe the gospel. And the last one, I'll go back to the actual passage. Um, Discrimination. In in verse uh, 21 of the chapter... Paul Paul's explaining why he's arrested on these charges. It says in verse 21, For this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and they tried to kill me. And right before it, he explains that they should be repentant, turned from God. He's talking about the Gentiles, that he's sent to live abroad for the rest of his life. He's going to be in international communities with people who are very different than the way he grew up. But Paul is saying, I'm going to go and I'm going to minister to them. And at that point, the Jews just can't stand it. They, they hate the notion that God would take his light and put it in a dark place with the Gentiles. A Gentile is a, is a non-Jew. So they basically thought, okay, we live God's way. You know, We keep the Ten Commandments. But those Gentiles over there, they don't do that. They live an alternate life. And so they look down their nose at them. And for Paul to go and live amongst them, it would be like defiling himself. That's racism. That's what that is. Underneath that spirit is that sense that I'm better than you and you're worse than me, okay? And even though as Canadians and as Canadians Christians, we don't have the whole Jew-Gentile thing, we do still some ways in that have that spirit of superiority that we can look down on other people, that we can discriminate. Um, just as, as a Canadian, I haven't come across too much racism, but I can think of workplace environments where I've heard uh, Native Americans referred to with racial slurs. Uh, I've been in guys' garages where they've had too many beers, and they start telling about how they can't stand, how there's foreigners coming and taking their jobs. Um, I've been around students in university, and they'll talk about how there's foreign professors, and they, you know, what are they doing here? They don't even speak English. It's all that same spirit, right? We have national bullying campaigns in Canada now to try and and curtail, or curb the whole thing that all kinds of kids are getting picked on because they don't wear the right clothes and all that stuff. There's that spirit of, I'm going to cut above the rest, okay? But think about Paul. Paul can live in jail for two years because he's a missionary to the Gentiles. He knows that he hasn't done anything wrong, and yet they're leaving him in jail. It's total injustice. And I don't think, knowing Paul, I don't think that he's um, complaining the whole time, that he's miserable. I think he still would have been able to handle it with composure and dignity. He would have been happy still. What's one thing that Paul said when he was around the churches? What's his one aim? I want to know Christ and Christ crucified. In other words, Paul, is, his whole life, his whole mind, is looking at everything through the gospel. So what is it about believing the gospel that will make you not be uh, someone who discriminates on other people? Well, the first thing is you've got to eat some humble pie. When you become a Christian, there's a good line that says the foot at the cross is level. In other words, anybody who's going to become a believer has to be, we're all equals. We're all sinners. We've all, we've all messed up. We've all failed, okay? And so even though you're different than me, even though you speak different, you grew up different, it doesn't really matter. We're all the same, okay? So this is where uh, there's a good quote from Terry Virgo. No, sorry. Uh, the Terry Virgo quote says that for people to... Uh, For people to look down their nose, it really is what they're doing is trying to measure up to other people's rules and regulations. We find ourselves watching to see if others are keeping them properly and fail to discover one another's true friends. When I realize I'm accepted in the beloved, I find myself free to receive you who are also accepted. Now we are free to relate to one another on a new basis. In other words, you can look at people who are completely different than you and you don't think um, do the same things that you do, but that's not the way you judge them or you relate to them. You relate to them as brothers and sisters in Christ, if they're Christians. So the church should be the most multi-ethnical, multi-racial place on the face of the earth because no one should ever be ostracized because you don't wear the right clothes, you didn't grow up the right way, or your skin's different color. There should never be any of that because we don't relate to one another on that way. We relate to each other because we're all brothers and sisters in Christ. Okay? So there's a couple of different examples of that, that principle. that The whole, the whole point... Um, is what I was saying earlier. How do you love God so much all the time, whether you're having a good day or a bad day, so that you obey him? How do you always find yourself in this place where you want to live for God? And that's believing the gospel. The the Bible makes it plain and simple that the more you believe in Jesus, the more you'll become like Jesus. And so, uh, can you just flip the last slide, John? Thanks. So I'll just leave on this. When you, when you believe, you become, you justified. The minute you believe, you're saved forever. Once saved, always saved, okay? But believing is kind of like having a muscle, right? I don't have the same arms as a guy like Tim Tebow or Arnold Schwarzenegger because I don't really work out all that much, right? But they do. They grow them. They develop. But we both have biceps. So when you're a Christian, you can, you're, you're saved. You have faith, right? But some Christians have a lot more faith. Some Christians believe the gospel a lot more than you do. And the more and more you do believe it, the more you're going to become like Christ. That's what I'm trying to say. So the, the biggest thing, if you want to become more like Jesus, is to believe the gospel. So here's just a couple practical tips that I'll, I'll leave with on how to work that into your life more and more. Preach to yourself. There was an English heart surgeon, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he said that Christians wrongly listen to all the other voices in their head aside from their own. You should preach sermons back to yourself. Back to yourself. Like last, last night, I did this... Uh, I didn't want to serve out drinks to people after the New Year's. No one was coming to get the drinks, and I knew that there was people who didn't have them. But I, honestly, without it, it, just I'm ingrained into it now. I preach to myself, no, Jesus washed other people's feet. He came to be your servant. Now you'll go and be other people's servant. And it's like all of a sudden I wasn't thinking, ah, I don't want to serve these people. It was, oh, I'm, I'm fine with that. I really do. Okay? So you want to constantly be telling yourself the truth of the gospel. The second one is customize the gospel to your situation. You can just quote John 316 to yourself a hundred times, but over time you'll lose it'll lose its its potency, right? So you, you've got to look at it the way I was trying to do it before is, okay, here's greed. If I just say John, you know, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life, over time, that won't really do that much in terms of me giving away money. But if I do it through the whole, he was rich, he became poor, I'm poor, now I'm rich, all that that it changes your attitude. So you have to constantly be, not rediscovering, but you have to be constantly growing in your knowledge and your depth of the gospel, right? So that you can customize it to whatever sin you're, you're trying to beat. Okay, last uh, two, last two ones. This is kind of what Gary was talking about. Understand the sinfulness of sin more and thank God for his mercy. If you think that, okay, yeah, I've screwed up a few times and God forgives me, that's great. Your level of joy for God will be this much compared to somebody who knows the evil and depravity of their own life and that they've been forgiven. That the wrath of God was totally coming for them and they deserved it and God has forgiven them. They're going to be so much more joyful. Jesus says it in a nice, succinct way when he says, he who has been forgiven of much, loves much. So the more and more you know that your sin is ugly and bad and that Um, god should by no means let you into heaven but by his grace and his mercy he does because he loves you you'll be more joyful the gospel will be more potent to you so when i go to my dad's camp i see the stars really awesome they're bright they're beautiful but when i come into the city i can't see the stars it's not like someone put them it's not like god put them in his pocket and, and took them away it's when i go to the camp it's dark out it's pitch black and so you can see the stars more brightly it's the same way the more you understand your own sin and the sinfulness of sin, then the more God's grace becomes bright and good and, and you're more happy with it. And the last thing is just the, the practical thing. Um, do you notice how the dynamic always changes when you come on Sunday mornings? When you worship God, we sing. By the end of Sunday, you're, you're leaving upbeat, happy. You're ready to go and serve God. That same attitude I was talking about, God will do whatever you want, like Why does that happen on Sunday mornings, but it can't happen on Tuesday? I think it's because most of the time we just wake up and start our day and let whatever thoughts come into our mind and what we're going to do. But if you take time before anything else competes for your attention and take time to worship God, to praise Him, to remind yourself of the gospel, boom, you're in that place again. Okay? So, all right, I'll, I'll pray and then you guys do whatever you want. Thank you, Father. That you love us. And uh, as Christians, it's our heart's desire to become more like you. And I thank you it's not by trying harder and gritting our teeth, God. It's by trusting you more. It's by believing your good news for us in Jesus. And we thank you for your love. Amen.